This week on the podcast, the U.S. Census in the time of Corona. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest is Karthik Ramakrishnan. He is a professor at UC Riverside and director of Center of Social Innovation and AAPI Data, uh, again, at UC Riverside. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Karthik. Thank you for having me. Well, first off, we have to give a little flavor because it may come up that both of us are parents and we are currently in a time of corona and childcare. So... I think the audience will forgive us, Karthik. <laughs> I hope so. It'll at least add some uh, add some spice to it. Well, I want to jump right into it because you have been uh, someone I've been thinking about quite a bit because of your work in and along the U.S. Census. For those who are not familiar or not aware or haven't gotten a mailer or live under a rock in these United States, uh, it's it's census o'clock. And what does that mean, Karthik? What it means is that, you know, we have a once in a decade shot to get this right. There's so many consequences uh, for uh, getting, you know, if we don't get this right, there are all sorts of uh, ways that our communities uh, are negatively impacted. So um, this is the decennial census. This means it happens every 10 years and it has major implications in terms of, you know, from the very, very local and granular uh, from the from the kinds of infrastructure that our communities have, including um, public safety, uh, investments in fire protection, investments in roads, investments in health and human services, all the way up to the number of members of Congress we have as a state, the way that legislative districts get drawn within states, not only for Congress and state legislatures, but also local offices. Um, finally, Census is critical to providing business intelligence uh, as well as nonprofit intelligence. Uh, Many may be familiar with the American Community Survey and other government surveys. They depend on the census. The census is the gold standard, if you will. Right now, we're, we're relying on data from the American Community Survey. Most recently, it's the 2018 American Community Survey, Um, but that survey is based on the last population base that was captured in 2010. So we're already very, very far away from an accurate population count of all persons in the United States. And so it's so important for us to get the count right in 2020 because it will affect the findings of virtually all government surveys of populations that occur over the next 10 years. You are super knowledgeable and super passionate about it. And I want to take a step back and how did you get into this game? It seems so wonky, something that comes up every 10 years. And I know you've been involved uh, with national surveys in the Asian American community uh, and clearly a lot of work uh, around data and uh, UC Riverside. Can you give us a a quick narrative uh, of your career and how it grew into this area of expertise and passion. 
Happy to. Uh, so I uh, I went to grad school in uh, at uh, Princeton University, and um, I, I graduated with a PhD in politics, uh, which it, it's Princeton's version of political science. Um, but while I was there, I started getting very interested in the issue of immigration. So I thought it would be important for me to take coursework in demography. So Princeton has a demography department. Uh, it's in the Office of Population Research. So I started taking classes in demography and just got more and more interested in studies of populations and in understanding uh, surveys and, and censuses. So that started over um, over 20 years ago. So it was in the late 90s that, that I was taking coursework in demography. And then started relying pretty heavily on products made by the U.S. Census Bureau. So my dissertation was based on the current population survey. That's a joint effort between the U.S. Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That essentially gives us a monthly snapshot of, uh, of the labor force and of uh, American residents more generally. Uh, so I got more and more, I, became, I was certainly a consumer of uh, products by the U.S. Census Bureau and surveys that derive from that. And then later on, got more active and involved through the National Asian American Survey, which started in 2008. And then AAPI data, which AAPI stands for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. We started that in 2013. And that's uh, when we got more intensively involved with in conversations with the U.S. Census Bureau. So your listeners may or may not know, there was a lot of effort in about, you know, from, uh, I would say from the last census, actually, until a couple of years ago, to envision potential changes to the way the race and ethnicity questions in the census would be asked. So the Census Bureau in 2010 actually ran an experiment. It was called the AQE, which was an alternative questionnaire experiment to see if how Americans would respond to some of these questions if they were asked differently. And these included adding Hispanic and Latino as a race as opposed to a separate ethnic category, as well as providing options for respondents, uh, not only Asians, but respondents of all racial groups to provide detailed origins. Some of those recommendations you will find in the census right now. So it was great. We were literally in conversations and sit down face-to-face -face meetings with Census Bureau officials in Washington, D.C. in 2014 and 2015 that have informed some of the changes that we've seen in the design of the census form now in 2020. Some of the changes that, that were being considered and actually recommended by the Census Bureau unfortunately did not make the final cut uh, with the current administration. Uh, and these include including Hispanic and Latino as a, um, as a racial category, uh, in, you know, appearing on the same question as white, black, et cetera. Uh, we won't see that in the 2020 census, uh, but I would say chances are quite high that we will see that in the 2030 census. There have clearly been a lot of headwinds uh, involved in, in this census. And it seems like the it just keeps coming uh, in terms of things that are going to depress results. I like the way you talk about how the design of a question, and you have given and architected many surveys, but the design, the sheer way it's asked, the who, 
is asked by and and that interface can affect so greatly the return. I mean, is there like any personal stories that you have of doing this because you you've been in, in it so long? Well, so one of the um, one of the results that we saw from the 2010 AQE, which is the alternative questionnaire experiment, one of the formats they had, and this was an experiment, so different people got different versions of the race and ethnicity question. One of them did away with uh, check boxes for detailed origin that have traditionally been included for Asian Americans. Uh, and instead just had the write-in category for Asians the way they did for other groups. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why one might want to do that to say it's important to standardize across groups. A lot of advocates uh, were concerned that moving away from it, so other racial groups did not have anything. They didn't have detailed checkboxes. They didn't have the ability to write in. And so what what, what the Census Bureau found was for for whites, for blacks, you saw massive increases in the amount of detailed origin reporting, which is not surprising because you're giving people an option for the first time ever, and they are writing down. So, for example, with with blacks or African Americans, they're writing down things like Nigerian or Haitian, right, or Jamaican. Uh, so all of a sudden now you have the ability to look at that ethnic diversity within the black population of the United States. Great thing, right? Similarly for whites, people can write down Welsh or Irish or German, right? And why it might not, it might not be as consequential uh, in terms of uh, language, determining language need or resource allocations, it at least gives us a richer sense of who Americans are. In the case of Asian Americans, what we found was that the proportion of people who wrote down things like Indian or Filipino or Japanese or Chinese, for some of those groups, it actually went down when you moved away from a checkbox to a write-in category, which makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, it's it takes more effort to write something down. So for people who don't want to be bothered or want to fill out a survey as quickly as possible, um, you're going to see a drop-off uh, if you move away from a checkbox method to a write-in method. And that's what we found. We found this to be troubling because we know that for a lot of Asian American groups, Asians are the only racial group in the country that are majority foreign born or majority immigrant. I think most people are surprised when they hear that. Um, and so language needs among Asians are actually on par with language needs for Latinos in the country. And for particular groups like Korean Americans, Chinese Americans, Vietnamese Americans, language needs are actually much higher than for the Latino community. So it's so essential to make sure that we get these numbers right, uh, and especially in the context of public health. You have county hospitals throughout the country that rely on U.S. Census Bureau data to figure out what kind of languages and language support they're going to offer in their hospitals. So that's how consequential it becomes. Something as simple as a write-in as opposed to a checkbox can make the difference as to whether or not a county hospital, especially in a rural area or in a suburban area, offers Vietnamese language support or does not offer that support. 
And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, We really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. It's interesting. And, you know, we can talk about intent all we want, but I started this sort of on a a headwinds type of conversation and another massive debate, clearly, last year was around whether or not to include the are you a citizen question. Can you unpack that and what it would have meant and what the current status of whether or not the census is asking whether or not you are a citizen and if that matters in the census. So first, I think it's important for all of all of your listeners to know that the 2020 census does not, I repeat, does not include a question on either immigrant status or citizenship status. Insert incredible like celebration noises. We won't, but like imagine like fireworks, like all of that going off right now. This is such good freaking news, but I am using hyperbole. You can use data and logic and reason, but I'm just excited. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is so essential. So what, uh, unfortunately what ended up happening was soon after the Trump administration took over policy uh, decision-making on the census, and this is under the U.S. Department of Commerce, they introduced the desire, they basically announced that they're going to add a question on citizenship status and nativity. It's actually a combined question. This question actually is included in uh, the American Community Survey, so they said, we do it in the American Community Survey, so there's no problem doing it in the census. Well, first of all, that is a major, major red flag. The American Community Survey, as the name implies, is a survey. It is not asked of every single American. There are there are several people who, even when uh, invited to participate, actually, it is a mandate to participate the way uh, participation in the census is a mandate. Uh, when they take the American Community Survey, there's a non-trivial number of people who do not uh, fill out the answer to that question. So already we knew that there might be some problems in terms of partial responses or potentially non-responses to the census by that question being added. What was remarkable and not in a good way was this question was introduced without input from the scientific community without input from the Census Bureau's own researchers and without input from uh, communities more broadly. This, uh, this was in clear violation of the normal rules and procedures that the Census Bureau follows. I told you when we talked about the race question, we were talking about changes to the design and the race question as far back as 2010 for the 2020 Census. So to introduce a brand new question to the census without testing, without consultation, was just unprecedented. Um, And it caused a lot of anxiety and uh, among many immigrant communities, a lot of panic. Um, People 
did not want the U.S. government collecting information about immigration status as part of the census. U.S. government collects that information through other means, uh, when people entering the country, when they issue visas, etc. cetera. Uh, and so there was, there was a major concern about the chilling effect that this would have in our communities. And, you know, we, we saw some examples. There was a, a community survey that was done in the Central Valley, which suggested a massive drop-off among Latino immigrants when it comes to participation in the U.S. Census because of the citizenship question. And in fact, that research was used in as evidence uh, in the case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. By the way, the reason why we don't have the citizenship question is because the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in and said that the Trump administration did not provide uh, sufficient justification and rationale to be able to proceed uh, with the changes that they were that they were seeking. What the Census Bureau's own survey showed, and this is before the citizenship question was introduced, was that Asian Americans ha had the, the, the least familiarity with the census, and they were the racial group most likely to say that they worried that the Census Bureau, uh, the information they provide to the census will be used against them, um, and they also were the ones least likely to say that they would take the U.S. Census. This is before the citizenship question. Uh, got brought in there. Now, some of your listeners may be thinking, well, Asian Americans, most of them are legal immigrants. This is not going to affect them. Well, one out of every seven Asian immigrants is estimated to be undocumented. So this is a non-trivial portion of the Asian American community. So the citizenship question would have had led to a significant undercount, not only of Latino communities, but of Asian uh, communities as well. Um, so, you know, yes, we can celebrate the fact that this has not been included because the 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 reason why the Supreme Court weighed in, a lot of it was due to procedural errors that the Trump administration engaged in. But if you look at the constitutional mandate of the census, the constitutional mandate of the census is to count all persons. It doesn't say count all citizens. It doesn't say count all legal permanent residents. It says count all persons. And so we really ran the risk of failing our constitutional duty with the census to be able to count all persons. Some say the damage has been done because many people heard the initial news stories and, and that fear and anxiety stuck in their minds. But community organizations are doing their very best to update people with the latest information and to provide reassurances that any information provided to the Census Bureau will not be shared with any other government agency, uh, including the IRS, including uh, ICE, which is Immigrations and, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, as well as any kind of state or local enforcement authority. So the information you provide to the census will not be shared with local code enforcement, right? So you're not going to see someone come to your door and say, you look like you have an overcrowded household based on the information you gave to the census. That is not going to happen. This is truly a lockbox of information that will be revealed for at least several decades to come in terms of any information at the household or individual level. And just to push this maybe a bit further, we've seen some unprecedented types of activity with regard to 
data, privacy, security, constitutional, you know, procedure, you, you know, run down the checklist. And to hear you say it's in a lockbox, what assurances that an executive order couldn't open that lockbox if, say, uh, you know, a national emergency was declared in the case of Corona? You know, so this um, this this concern about data privacy, data security, national security um, is you know is a significant one. There has been one instance that we know of where census records were used. Uh, in violation of civil rights, and that was with Japanese Americans in the case of internment. Since then, we've had laws in place um, that prevent the federal government from accessing that information, uh, even in the case of uh, a national emergency. Now, does that mean that we have a 100% uh, you know, fail-safe mechanism here? Nothing is 100%. What I would tell your listeners is that this is about as strong a set of protections uh, as we can get. Uh, and if there's a violation of this bright red line in terms of being able to access census information, we've got other problems in our country at that point. Um, so, um, and, and, and on the flip side, the only way that we can make sure that we're able to preserve our democracy is to make sure that everyone gets counted. I mean, there was um, a reason they put it into the Constitution, right? It was like, we need to know where all the humans are. Absolutely. And this is the way that we ensure that we have one person, one vote, right? If we don't have an accurate count, you will have some states that are overrepresented and other states that are underrepresented because of population changes that have occurred um, between the last census and this census. So, but even more fundamentally than that, even within states, census is the bedrock principle that leads to representation. So if there is going to be some kind of executive overreach um, where our, our civil rights are being violated, the only hope we have is to rely on our elected representatives to serve as a check on that power uh, and for the courts uh, to also do the same. Now. I don't want to go into this too much because I don't want to drive up uh, anxiety levels uh, unnecessarily. I would say the risk are virtually zero that there would be any kind of uh, violation of American law uh, as far as census data uh, are concerned. Um, now, there are other issues uh, that are coming up now with census data collection. So, for example, um, immigration and customs enforcement they are not stopping their enforcement activity either because of COVID, although they've scaled it back now, uh, or because of census. And that, that presents a real problem in many of our communities. If someone is knocking on your door and you fear that it's someone trying to do your household harm, how likely are you to fill out a census form either online or when someone comes to your door? Um, there's some real, real concerns here that even with the legal protections that we have in place when it comes to the sharing of information, the way the executive branch implements various policies, including on COVID, including on immigration enforcement and on census, uh, there's, there's a concern that uh, we may be sending mixed messages or 
driving down participation unnecessarily uh, in the census uh, at a time when we need it the most. Yeah. And during a time of social distancing, mistrust in government and the rise right of, of COVID right now, which in all likelihood is not going to be going away anytime soon, that's a pretty big headwind. Can you tell me actually what is novel about this census with regard to the ability to register online? How does that work? And is that potentially a way community organizations and uh, groups that care about it could message out about a way of signaling that you do in fact live in an area that may need hospital support, that may need you know schooling and vote and representation and, and, and how that might work? Yeah, so this is the first uh, census where um, the vast majority of people that are participating are going to be doing it online, right? So you can go to 2020census.gov and respond. Uh, you can take the census. You can do that right now. We are, even though census day is April 1st, uh, starting on March 12th, individuals and households were able to go online and register their information for the census. Uh, what's important is, and this, you know, I, interestingly enough, I, I actually filled out my census form early. Um, I run the Inland Empire Complete Count Committee uh, for census outreach in the Riverside and San Bernardino County region of California. And we were going to be updating our website to the 2020census.gov link. And so it was March 11th evening. Uh, and I updated the link. And lo and behold, I saw it said that I could, I could uh, participate in the census. So I clicked on it. I had not yet received my letter in the mail with my unique ID. Um, but there was a, a line there that says, don't have your unique ID, uh, click here. So I was curious, I clicked on it, and lo and behold, you can fill out the census, including your um, your residential address, without needing that unique ID that you got in the mail. Now, the Census Bureau still recommends that if you got that unique ID in the mail and you're able to locate it, to, to use that so that they can, uh, they can fill in uh, some of the information uh, accurately and not have to rely on you to do it. But what I would tell your listeners, and this is important, is for a lot of people, you know, we get so much mail or things get lost in the shuffle, and especially in the context of COVID, people should not wait for another reminder to come in or to hunt for that material in the pile of things uh, that they have. You can go to 2020census.gov and say that you do not have the ID on hand and fill out that information. In fact, I've been telling a couple of folks uh, that do media and outreach to say, to use that as a potential messaging point, that you do not need your ID to participate in the census. And I think that that's a pretty powerful symbol, right? You don't need a driver's license. You don't need any kind of government-issued identification to participate in the census. They really do want to count all persons, including those that don't have ID, either in terms of uh, documentation, government-issued documentation that people think that they need, uh, or even the census ID uh, that they're getting in the mail. And there's also been another shift uh, with regard to coronavirus in that it seems like they've extended the deadline. Is that correct? Absolutely. So 
both for a census. Right now, we're in the census self-response period. So this is this is where we want to get as many people filling out uh, the census forms as possible. Uh, and in fact, you can go to the Census Bureau's website and track what proportion of households have already filled out the census. Whoa, wait a minute. By and region? So I can go and be like, wait a minute, my region is totally underreported right now? Absolutely. How do I do in that? Fact, you this can, is great. This is fantastic. Yeah, you can do it. Um, in, and, you know, later, let me uh, go and uh, I can provide we'll do show tax. notes. It's all in the show notes, but I'm going to geek out on this stuff. Yeah, and, and it's not only by region. You can look at it by county. You can look at it by congressional district, and you can look at it by city. It's pretty incredible stuff. Now, that said, we are way behind where we need to be. So we're below 20% uh, across the country. In fact, uh, when I looked yesterday, and let me just look at, uh, let me just look at my phone here. Uh, when I looked yesterday, um, we were at 19% nationally uh, in terms of people that are, uh, that have filled out the census forms. And I, in, our, in the counties of Riverside and San Bernardino, it was below the national average. It was 18% in Riverside, 16% in San Bernardino County. So we have a long way to go. So I think it's just so vital um, for us to make sure that everyone fills out that information as early as possible online because uh, we need to get those numbers up. It's especially important in the context of COVID or coronavirus, right? Because what the U.S. government is counting on is to have a very high proportion of people filling out this information online so that they do not have to be sent something in the mail, which will be more expensive. A census form being sent in the mail, filled out, sent back, scanned in, checked for errors is more expensive. And then the step after that in which they have to send out field workers to do the enumeration in person is going to be even more expensive than that. Add to it the complication that we don't even know how many field workers they can recruit because of the, the potential health risks, train again because of the potential health risks, and also deploy out in the field, especially if this is a moving target in terms of what, uh, you know, what shelter in place and social distancing means over the next several months. So uh, online uh, census response was already going to be a priority, but it gets a lot more, uh, it takes on a lot more urgency given the context of COVID and coronavirus. So I could right now, I, I care deeply about this, and I will absolutely dedicate an email blast uh, from my company out just simply going, go take the census because of all these reasons. We're going to play a quick game that I just made up, so sorry for that. We're going to call... We're going to call this What's In It For Me, uh, starring Karthik here, giving us the rationale of why other organizations in the nonprofit sector or for-profit, whatever I randomly choose for you, why on earth they would want to maybe dedicate some messaging to filling out the census online for their constituents. Are you ready to play, Karthik? I'm ready. All righty. Start off the softball. Uh, what's in it for me? I am a maybe health or cancer research organization working regionally, locally, nationally? Well, one answer will be the same for everybody is that if you want any kind of reliable information about the populations you serve, you need to have an accurate count for the census. On top of that, in the health context, 
if you have populations with language needs, um, you will need to have accurate ethnicity information in the census to be able to serve the populations that you care about. What's in it for me? I happen to be a animal rights organization, and I don't care about the people as much as the animals. Well, animals, this is not a census of animals. So, uh, but if you're trying to fundraise and you depend on accurate information uh, in terms of where people live and uh, the potential uh, donor pool that you're looking at, those surveys will be based on the decennial census, which serves as a gold standard. So even if you don't care about people and you only care about animals, you will need accurate census data. What's in it for me? I'm a environmental organization that sometimes deals with advocacy issues at my local and state levels. So census is primarily uh, about counting the population, but it also captures information about um, households, uh, including, uh, including residences, right? So to the extent that you care about land use, uh, the census uh, contains valuable information, not only about people, uh, but also the kinds of dwellings in which they live, which will be important for the kinds of uh, issues you care about. More generally, if you want to understand the composition of uh, any elected member's district, it is the, uh, it is the decennial census that will provide that information. And in fact, in early 2021, you will have access to data on key population metrics in various congressional districts, uh, as well as census tracts that'll be important for redistricting that'll occur in 2020. I have to remind everyone that I gave Karthik no manner of preparation on this whatsoever before putting him on the spot. He's doing amazingly well. Our next one up on the what's in it for me. I am a workforce development group focused on low-income community communities in my area, helping them with job training and skilling up where needed? Well, you're going to rely on the census because when you look at the current population survey, as well as other state uh, and local uh, data collections on workforce, it is all going to point back to the 2020 census. And this is going to be important for the next 10 years. So if you want to have accurate information about serving your workforce needs over the next decade, you better make sure that your populations uh, are, are filling out the census so that you have good information to work with. Uh, thank you so much for sort of making that case because it's uh, hard to maybe draw those parallels and those lines of why is it relevant and what's in it for my organization and more importantly, the justification for communicating taking this survey to your stakeholders. So thank you for that. All right. We're moving into the rapid fire round because it's entertaining and I want to hear a bit more about what you're working on. Are you ready for our quick response questions? All righty. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? In the last year, of course, Zoom is like all the rage now. Uh, so, But I want to also lift up uh, ArcGIS, which is uh, a product of Esri, um, and that it's a set of mapping tools that we're finding to be quite powerful in terms of taking data and converting it to visualization that can help communities. What is one tech issue you are currently battling with? One tech issue we're battling with right now 
trying to become more savvy in terms of using all of the controls that are possible with Zoom Pro. This has been a trial by fire. We've mostly just used it uh, for conference calls or for webinars, but to try to do it for community organizing is something that we are finding a bit of a challenge at finding ways to adapt it um, for that use. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? You know, we are trying to figure out what to do as a natural continuation of the census work. This is something that we've been thinking about uh, for a few months now. And, you know, COVID uh, is, is in some ways throwing a wrench in the works, but it also is getting us to think adaptively and dynamically uh, in terms of how we can build on the amazing work we've done. And this is not just our center. We've been working with government partners, with nonprofit partners, business partners. How do we continue building on those relationships and the kind of cross-sector collaboration that, that we've benefited from on census? And I think we're actively right now uh, moving in real time. So we've created a resource called IE COVID Response, which is in the Empire COVID Response. And we're, re we're relying on many of the same partners that we relied on for a census. But in the longer term, we want to use this community to build a vision for inclusive regional planning and to think about the next decade in our communities and what it will take to, to build a more inclusive and sustainable. Can you talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now? This is something that I, I would say that we're still grappling with is when you know how long do you wait for something to be good enough to launch it and sometimes i think maybe we've been uh, a little too impatient in getting things out and then figuring out that we would uh, fix it later but i i still maybe this is not uh, this may i don't know if this is a non-answer or maybe i hope it's not seen as a defensive answer we'd rather err on the side of getting things out and then fixing it with the help of our stakeholders and waiting for the perfect uh, to emerge. And Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Yes. One, if they actually solve the problems uh, that, that they aim to address. Two, if someone else comes in and does something better, uh, either in terms of efficiency or scale uh, or effectiveness, there is no reason to continue a nonprofit uh, just because there was an original idea that was good. If I were to toss you in the hot tub time machine, back to the beginning of your work uh, with the census, what advice would you give yourself? The advice I would give myself is to make sure to resource things properly. But, you know, I think it's, it's hard when people are starting off in their careers, they're trying to establish a name and a reputation for themselves. Chances are, in the first few years, they will be burning the candle on both ends and doing a lot of work without a lot of resources to build their reputation. Uh, and then once that reputation is established, getting the kinds of resources that can help them. But uh, one thing I would say is don't don't hesitate to ask for help. Uh, that's something that that's something that I constantly have to try to learn from myself. What is something you think you or your organization should stop doing? I think that we should stop trying to take on issues where we don't have current expertise just because there is a need to fill it. If I gave you a magical Harry Potter style wand to wave across the social impact sector, what would it do? It would find ways to better integrate philanthropy with 
uh, with the public sector. Uh, if you look at the resources that the public sector has and the capabilities, it is enormous. Instead of either or, we need to have both ends. How did you get started in the social impact sector? It was trying to solve problems uh, that no one else seemed to be addressing. So it was mostly, uh, and, and it was also recognizing the privilege that comes with being a tenured professor, right? So I did not have to worry about constantly having to fundraise for myself and could take risks and take on new opportunities that others couldn't. What advice would you give college grads currently looking to enter the social impact sector? I would encourage patience, humility, but also the desire to introduce new ideas and new energy into the nonprofit and for-profit sectors as well as the government sector. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or didn't follow as it regards to your career? I think my parents uh, encouraged me to follow what I was passionate about, and that's something that I would uh, that I would say is generally good advice. But I've heard two versions of this. It's either do what you're passionate about or become passionate about what you do. And I think either solution works. There is no point uh, continuing along the line of work when you're harder than it. And final question, how do people find you? How do people help you? They can find me uh, on my website, karthik.com, K-A-R-T-H-I-C-K. My Twitter info is there as well. And how... Can they help me? Was that the second question? Yeah, how do we help you, man? Giving feedback on the different projects that we have. If you if you go to API data, there's things that are missing that we need to include. Um, or if there are opportunities that we can connect up with others that are doing similar work, that would be awesome. Well, brilliant. I actually just jotted down a note here. When will we actually find out what the census results are? So in terms of uh, the results from the census, um, we will find that in... The spring of 2021, uh, when the data come out, that will help with redistribution. Karthik, you are a wealth of passion and information regarding the census. Uh, We really appreciate the time and stay healthy and best of luck this year. Thank you. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us. Thanks as always for listening. If uh, you are able to, please uh, leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, whatever you happen to be listening on. The ratings help. The comments are delightful. We appreciate them. We also appreciate gregthomasmusic.org. Thanks, Greg. Your music is delightful. And finally, we are accepting messages from you, feedback on episodes, questions, things you just want to say to us. Uh, We have a way to record it and share it with us at wholewhale.com slash podcast. Thanks.